And again, we welcome you here to Peace Bible Church. We're glad that you're here today. There are a number of people out sick. Every time uh, someone would come in, I'd say, where's the rest of your family? Well, they're not here, Uh, but we will do our best. So we're glad that you guys are all feeling well enough to be here. We'll remember in prayer those who are not able to be with us today. Uh, If you've been attentive to our service so far today, you have probably known that we have drawn our thoughts through songs and scriptures to themes related to lambs, to shepherding and sheep, and that sort of thing. We began our service this morning with an invitation to worship from a God who, through the prophet Ezekiel, called himself the shepherd of his people, of Israel. And this part of scripture followed after a rebuke of the shepherds of Israel, which is what God called their leaders. He said the human leaders of the people of Israel were not caring like good shepherds should be, and they mistreated the people. But God reminded them that he is not like that, and he welcomes all to come to him. And so we turn to him in worship. We sang about the Lamb of God on whom our sins was laid. We remembered in uh, the song, What Child Is This? We thought about uh, Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he would bring, and we remembered the shepherds and the angels who praised him on the night of his birth. We, of course, move from there into our scripture reading of Psalm 23, reminding us that the Lord is our shepherd. And as we confessed our sins and received the forgiveness of the Lord, we were taught once again that in doing so, we are returning to the shepherd of our souls, though we have strayed like sheep. And as we return to worshiping God through song in response to the gospel, that song, He Shall Reign Forevermore, reminded us of the wise men and shepherds who visited Christ when he was born and how we ought to be faithful in the same way. And in our last song, we were struck again with the imagery of the blood of the Lamb whose death cleanses us of our sins that we might be made white like wool. And all this reminds us of the vast array of imagery throughout the Bible referring to lambs, to sheep, to the shepherds who care for them. It's all through the scriptures. And as we continue today looking at the gospel of Luke and at the birth of Jesus Christ, we will once again encounter shepherds in our reading. And in one sense, that's very surprising because these are not the people that you would expect a king to appear to. And yet at the same time, if you have been paying attention to the story of Scripture, it's not surprising in the least that God would come to shepherds. So let's read our passage, and then we will consider it together. We will pick up in Luke chapter 2 and verse 8, following verse 7, which said that Mary gave birth to Jesus and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Meanwhile, something else was going on. We see in verse 8, and we'll read through verse 20. It says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger." And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. 
When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So that's our passage for this morning. We're picking up today again following the birth of Jesus Christ that we looked at last week. We saw last week how God had entered the human story in a significant way with the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, taking on human flesh, being born just like us. This is a radical thing. I was, heard someone talk a while ago that they were working years ago with someone who was doing uh, early work using computers for Bible translations, like back in the 90s. And they were testing stuff, and they would put things in the computer and see what came out translation-wise. And they did something where they were translating in John 1, where it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've heard that passage a lot, maybe, so that it sounds so familiar to us. But it's meant to be a shocking and incredible thing. And he said what happened was they actually translated this passage like from the Greek, I think, into German, and then from German into English. And it came through as the word became meat and dwelt among us. And he said, well, that's kind of disgusting. But that's kind of the point of the whole thing. Like, it's not wrong. Like, God was bringing himself down to be like us. This is an act of condescension. We think of condescending like you're talking down to someone. But no, in a different sense of the word, he was coming down to us. So Jesus Christ takes on human flesh, and he's born just like us. There's nothing glamorous about his body. It is a human body like ours. And that's what we looked at last week was the humanity of Jesus' birth, the ordinariness of Jesus' birth. It was a regular human birth, and it was a humble one, we saw. All the more when we consider that Jesus was laid in the feeding trough of the animals, which is what the word manger means. And so last week we looked at that humility behind Jesus' birth, the humanity of it. This week we will shift our focus to the more glorious side of Jesus' birth and the response of people to this. But this glorious side of Jesus' birth begins in quite an ordinary way. In verse 8, it says that there were shepherds out in the fields near Bethlehem. So they're working a swing shift, a graveyard shift. It's out at night, and these guys are working because shepherding was hard work. I'm sure it still is hard work, but it was hard work, gritty work, dirty work, underappreciated work. Because Bethlehem is so close to Jerusalem, it's often been noted that it's quite likely that these shepherds could have been raising lambs to be used as sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem. The very sacrifices which were there to foreshadow the coming of Jesus Christ. And so because of the centrality of temple worship in the nation of Israel, lambs were a necessary commodity for their society. Very valuable 
you're playing like Settlers of Catan, everybody wanted lamb cards in ancient Israel. They all needed lambs. And so it was very valuable to their society and to their worship as a society. But because of the nature of shepherding work, it was actually difficult for shepherds themselves to keep the ceremonial laws of the Jewish people and to participate in that temple worship that they were supplying the animals for. And so commonly, they wouldn't even been able to participate. And in a way, that's still the nature of many service-oriented jobs, right? A maid in a high-end, fancy hotel could never dream of spending a night in one of the suites that they have to keep clean. Or the busboy at a high-end restaurant might never get down, might never get to sit down and have a meal at that same restaurant where he works. And so it was with the shepherds. Their work was essential to the worship and the life of the people of Israel, but they themselves often found themselves on the outside of it. They were lower class. They were not powerful. They were not important. They were not recognized. They were not rulers or governors or kings. They were not priests or religious leaders. But it's shepherds to whom the angels come on the night of Jesus' birth. But why would the angel come to shepherds? And the first reason is a simple one, and it's that they were the ones who were up. They were awake at the time, and so they had to go find them. We don't know what time it was. It says it was nighttime. Was it 6 p.m.? Was it 2 a.m.? The scripture doesn't tell us. We don't know, but they were working because that's what they did, and they're out there working at night. And some people will say, oh, because the shepherds were out working at night, Jesus could not have been born in December. That's just a later tradition. But You know, shepherds are willing to work at night throughout the year, particularly in a moderate climate like Israel. Jesus could have been born at any time of year. The scriptures don't tell us. So I'm just going to assume he was born on December 25th because that's like, why not? Like, it's good. Symbolic too. Long, dark day. Light comes into the world. This is all good. So they're out there working on that December night or whenever in the year you think they might have been working. It doesn't tell us, but they are just out working a normal work shift, whatever that was at night, working with the sheep. And they don't realize that while they are working, the most significant event to that point in the history of the world has happened just in the town right near them. And isn't that the way things often are? We're just going about our business and the most significant things in the world are happening and we have no idea. I understand this in my own life. Our daughter Kara was adopted, and we adopted her when she was 13 days old, and so her birthday was February 23rd, 2014, and I look back. I've tried to look at, like, my calendar or even, like, Facebook memories or whatever. I have no idea what I was doing that day. Just an ordinary day, nothing significant enough to recall or remember. Meanwhile, one of the most significant things in the history of our family is happening an hour away, and we have no idea because God didn't bring us into that story until two weeks later. And so that's often how it is. We should ask God to have eyes to see what he is doing because he's always doing so many things, and we often don't see them. Uh, Sometimes that's owing to us. Sometimes it's just we're not supposed to see them yet. And that's how it was for the shepherds. How would they have known? Jesus' birth was so ordinary. They had no way of knowing it was so significant unless they had been told. And so God tells them. Look at verse 9. An angel of the Lord appears to them. And also it says this. The glory of the Lord shone around them. Like what was that? 
you know, fireflies, I don't know, sparkly stuff. We don't know, but it's probably a reference to that same glory of God that we know of as the Old Testament, as the Shekinah glory of God, when God would appear to his people in some tangible form. Like when the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness, during the day he appeared to them in a cloud, during the night by a pillar of fire. And so though people cannot see God, he at times has given his people ways to see a visual representation of of his presence. And that's what he's doing again here. That same presence surrounds the shepherds. So they're surrounded by this visible glory of God, whatever that looked like, not yet realizing that an even more tangible and visible visible expression of God's presence is in a feeding trough in the next town over. But they're about to find that out. And so they see the angel, they are afraid of the angel, which is the typical response in the Bible when somebody meets an angel. You probably don't want to meet an angel. People tend to be very afraid when they meet an angel. Like these angels, we saw them in chapter 1. They met Zechariah. They said, hey, don't be afraid. The angel meets Mary. He says, hey, don't be afraid. They meet the shepherds. Same thing. Don't be afraid. It's like... They're just used to saying this. They know that they terrify and frighten people. Some of you might know this by experience. No, I'm just kidding. None of you terrify and frighten people by your very image. You're just used to that. Hey, good to meet you. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I'm friendly. But they're used to saying this, so they say don't be afraid. He says, I'm bringing good news. He says it's good news, it's joyous news, and it's for everyone. Verse 10, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And if you read biblical scholars, they'll note that that phrase for all the people would probably have been most naturally understood as referring to all of the Jewish people, since that's how the term was typically used. But we know from reading through the Gospels that it is far more than just that. This is good news for the whole world, for every person. Jesus has come for everyone. But I like how the angel personalizes it in verse 11. So verse 10, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for everyone. Verse 11, for unto you. saying, you guys, you shepherds who are here listening to me, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And I know that there are people sometimes who struggle with this. Like they could readily accept verse 10 that like the message of Jesus is good news of great joy for everyone, but they're not so sure about it applying to them in a personal sense. You know, like maybe the shepherds being on a lower rung of society were like this. They think good news, yeah, you know, great joy, yeah, for all the people, yeah, for sure, let's do this. But then the angel says, don't forget, this is for you. You are part of all the people, and this applies to you. There are some people who consider themselves to be Christians because they believe some truth about Jesus Christ. They might believe that he's the Son of God, the Savior of the world. They might believe that his moral example is good, that the Bible is true in some sense, a good moral guide. But then they haven't personally trusted in Christ or committed their lives to him. I think the angel is getting at that here. This isn't just an abstract thing for the world in a general sense. This is not just for your countrymen to benefit from. This is for you, for each one 
of you. And do you notice the phrasing there? For unto you is born this day. It has echoes there of Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And now unto us has given way to unto you. Like it's right here, it is for you. Unto you is born what? A Savior, one who will save you. And the angel doesn't define what Jesus' saving work will be. And as we've talked about, there was probably a fair amount of speculation that the salvation that Jesus would bring would be like a military sort of salvation, that they'd throw off their Roman oppressors and overlords and all of that sort of stuff. And we know, as we talked about a couple weeks ago here, that Jesus was there to defeat even greater enemies on their behalf half. The enemies of sin and death and the devil. He would save them from their sins as a matter of first importance. And the shepherds might not know all of this yet. They know that Jesus is the Savior. What will that mean? That's going to come into focus as Jesus comes into the world. But they trust that whatever God means here is true. And the angel gives them a sign. He says, look for a baby. Verse 12, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And you think the first, how's that a sign? It says, here's the sign. Look for a baby and he'll be wrapped in swaddling cloths. And we talked about this last week. That was typical, normal baby care. So he's saying, look for a baby that is a baby. But that's what he's saying. It's brand new. And Bethlehem's a small village here. So there's maybe one other kid that this would have applied to probably based on statistics. So they say, look for the newest kid in town. He's still wrapped up in a swaddling blanket. And then, although that was an ordinary thing, the lying in the manger, lying in the feed trough for animals was not an ordinary thing. That wasn't a typical crib. So that gave them something else to look for. He doesn't even give them like, I would have asked for an address. Like, I don't want to go around asking, hey, did you just have a baby? Is he in a feeding trough? Hey, like knocking on every door. I don't know how many houses are in this town, but you've got to go find the person. You know, the, no Google Maps, anything like that. Just look for the baby. He gives them some work to do, and so they are going to go and do it. But before they go look, they get interrupted by a bunch more angels. All of a sudden, we're told there in verse 13, there was a multitude of the heavenly host. And that word for host is a military term. This is saying, you know, we're often told, like, uh, you know, about the choir of angels that was at Jesus's birth, you know, seeing choir of angels, seeing an exaltation, all this sort of stuff. That's not bad, uh, but that's not the term that is used here. It's not so much a choir of angels as an army of angels that appears in the sky before him. This is a military unit, and we don't even know, in fact, that they sang. We assume that they sang because it says they were praising God and saying, but that word praising God doesn't even have to mean singing. It could mean singing. It probably did mean singing, but we don't even know for sure. I wonder if it was some sort of military chant. I always like, you ever see those like Maori, like Hakka chants that they do? Uh, I like to think that it was something like that. If I was making the movie, that's what I would make it as. But they say this, what's important is not how they were saying it because he didn't tell us how they were saying it it. What's important is what they were saying. And what they were saying is in verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. 
First off, glory to God in the highest. This is God's highest goal, is to glorify himself. And we read this throughout scripture, that God's purpose is to bring himself glory. Even in saving people, it brings God glory. And you might say, is that not selfish for God to have his highest purpose be his own glory? Because that would be selfish for you or me. If I said, my highest purpose is to glorify myself and make sure that I am glorified and and honored. That would be wrong and sinful and dumb. But with God, it's not wrong because God's highest glory is our greatest good. And what's good for us will glorify God. It's not selfish for God to say that because he is God. You know, God can do certain things that we should not do because he is God, like demanding our worship or, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, But that's the first thing. This is what they're about. Glory to God in the highest. Everything Jesus is doing is bringing God glory. And how is that happening? The second part of this might sound a little bit different than what you are used to. In the ESV that I'm reading from, it says, And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And so there is some difference in how this phrase gets translated. The King James translation beautifully renders this verse as glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill to men. And that's a lovely phrase and it's true and it's poetically phrased, but I think that the clunkier phrasing of the ESV is probably getting more at the intent of the passage here. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let's stop and think about this. It's an amazing thing that the most powerful army in the universe is lined up in the sky, and you say, oh no, are they about to declare war? No, they're about to declare peace. The army has lined up to declare peace rather than war. But it is not a generic sense of peace. It's not just a good feeling of Christmas spirit and being nice to each other and all of that sort of stuff. It's not just love and brotherhood. It's peace between God and man, first and foremost and primarily. And remember, we talked a lot about peace when we launched this church. Think of that as wholeness and completeness between God and man, relationship between God and man, not just the absence of conflict. Yes, the absence of conflict, but more than that a whole and complete relationship between God and man. God has come to mend that divide, to fix the divide that has come between God and man. But we should ask, who is this peace for? Because this passage, as we've read it, might come across a little bit confusing to you because back in verse 10, the angel said, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for who? For all of the people. But now in verse 14, the other angels come in and it sounds like this message of peace from God is not for all the people, but for a subset of the people, the people with whom God is pleased. So that doesn't necessarily sound like everyone. So we ask, which is it? Is the message of hope for all the people or is it for some of the people? And this gets to an important question, that is the message of Christ is Christianity inclusive or is it exclusive? And there are different ways to look at this, and so the answer, of course, is both. 
this good news of great joy for all the people. It reminds us that Christianity is, in one sense, the most inclusive religion in all the world. And actually, the expression of Christianity throughout the world makes it by far the most diverse religion in all of the world is Christianity. Because Christianity and Jesus Christ is not for one race, for one ethnicity, or anything like that. It doesn't have a geographic center of the faith. It's not for any particular race, culture, class, location, language. It transcends all of those things. And so the gospel message and the message of Christ has proven to be remarkably adaptable in different cultures because the broad applicability of the gospel. There is nobody who is beyond the grace of God. It's not like we don't need to go take it to those people because they won't be saved by Christ. Anyone can be saved, but also nobody comes to God in a different way from anybody else. There is only that one, you know, or yeah, it's not different for anyone else. Like, you know, the wealthy don't come to God in a different sense than the poor. This race doesn't come in a different sense than this race, this language and this language. And so in that sense, it is quite inclusive. The message of Christ is for everybody, even as we see here, the lowly shepherds, the lowly people in society. And yet, there's an exclusivity to the gospel as well because scripture teaches us that salvation is only through Jesus Christ. That there is no other name under heaven on earth by which people can be saved. So when it says there that this message of peace is for all people, that means that it is open to everyone. Anyone can look to Christ and be saved to know the peace between that person and God. But the flip side of that is that if you do not look to Christ, you will not be saved. If you're looking to a false God or to your own sense of godliness, you will not find the requisite righteousness to be saved. But in Christ, you will find it. And no matter who you are, it is yours to claim and lay hold of by faith in Jesus Christ. And when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, God will be pleased with you, as our text phrases it today. Because Jesus was not just born as a baby. He grew up to live a perfectly righteous life. He died a sinner's death in our place so that we could be forgiven of God, have all our sins clean, and we could be given the very righteousness of Christ so that God will declare us not just forgiven, but perfect and holy. And that is how God becomes pleased with us. We think wrongly when we think that God is automatically pleased with us because God is love or something like that. No, because God is love, he made a way to be pleased, to wipe our sins clean. And so that's the message. There's this message here to the shepherds that the baby born in Bethlehem is the Savior, the Messiah, they say, the Christ, the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Christ means Messiah, the anointed one, the fulfillment of prophecy in the Jewish scriptures. So he's Savior, he's Messiah, he's Lord. Lord meaning the master of all. Lord, a term that is often used for God. Many have noted that the gospel message is at its heart the message that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord is the heart of the gospel. But that's not good news if he's not your friend. But if you come to him, he will be. 
And so it becomes good news because through Jesus you can have peace with God, forgiveness of all your sins, a relationship with God, a purpose and direction for your life. And this is because he is our Savior and our Lord. And that was true even at his birth. And he was born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So the shepherds go to see this. In verse 15, the angels go away. They go away from them into heaven, back to do whatever they do in heaven. And the shepherds say, we've got to go now. And so they make their way to Bethlehem. And again, it was a small town, so we don't know how long it took them. But eventually they found Mary and Joseph and the baby in the feeding trough, just like the angel had described. And they say, no way, this actually happened, just like he said. And so what do they do? They start telling everyone what they heard. Verse 17, when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. First, they told Joseph and Mary, and then they start telling everyone. And how do people respond? Look at verse 18. They're very curious. It says, all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. This is a term of amazement. It's used all throughout the Gospels. This term is translated wonder here. It it indicates that people are fascinated by what's going on, but it doesn't necessarily indicate that they believe it yet. Like they might or they might not, but for the time being, they find this being a fascinating thing. What is happening here? This is intriguing. Something's going on. There's a lot happening here. There's a lot being said, and we're drawn into this. We're interested in whatever it is that is happening here. And then we see, but so there's excitement. There's excitement building. You know, word is spreading. The Messiah has come. The Savior has come. And people are excited. This is good. This is good to hear. We're excited about this. Is it a saving faith? They probably don't even know enough at that point, but they're excited about it. And then there's a contrast here. Verse 18, all who heard it wondered. They were amazed. They were intrigued. They were fascinated. They were excited. They wondered at what the shepherds told them. And then the contrasting word there in verse 19 but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And this is like the sweetest response for the mother of Jesus to have. She treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. She's keeping like a baby book. This is the visitor who came. This is what he said. This phrase has caused many to think that Luke probably talked to Mary and heard these stories from herself, if not her, certainly somebody who know her, who knew her. But it says she treasured up all these things. She stored them. She pondered them in her heart. You know that popular song, Mary, Did You Know? People have a lot of opinions about this song on the internet. (laughs) Because they say, well, yeah, I've read the Bible. Of course she knows. The angel told her. But then you say, but what did she know? If you go through the questions asked in the song, there are some obvious yeses. Uh, there are some probable like no's, probably not. Like she probably didn't know that he would walk on water, uh, but she did know that he was like the savior. Uh, and there's a lot of maybes and probably's. I actually worked through all the questions in the song. This is what I came up with. Mary, did you know? My guess, no, yes, maybe, maybe, no, maybe, probably, yes, yes, maybe, and probably. Uh, that was my best guess at, the, at her answers to the song. You can go back and tie those to the questions in the song or... Ask me about it, I'll work through it on the podcast if you're that curious. But, uh, but it's hard to say exactly what all she knew at this point, but we know that she was processing a lot at this point. This verse tells us that she's thinking about it. That uh, word there for pondering is actually a word that often is used for conversation. 
between people. So it's like she's having an internal dialogue with herself, like thinking through these things. And so with all of this truth being revealed about the newborn Jesus at this time, we see two main responses in our text this morning. One being proclamation. The shepherds are excited about Jesus. They're telling everyone. They are proclaiming it. So proclamation. Even in verse 20, when they leave the baby Jesus and they head back to the fields, they tell everyone along the way while they're on their way back, hey, did you hear about this? And this is a good and right response to the truth about Jesus Christ. You come to know God through his son, Jesus, and you want to tell others about it. You want to tell everyone about it. That's awesome. And I would hope that at some point in each of our lives, we would have the zeal of these shepherds. If you know the truth about Jesus, don't keep it all to yourself. Remember that it is good news of great joy for all the people. We have to have this response of proclamation, telling others what we have seen and heard, because it's for everyone you know. It's not just for you. But Mary's response is good here. And Mary's response I would call contemplation. She's thinking about it. She's not running around telling everybody. Also, she just had a baby. So that might be a little difficult in her state. But she's aware of what God is doing. She's attentive to what God is doing. She's thinking about it. My guess, and this is purely a guess, but my guess is that Mary was a quieter person by nature. And I don't know this for sure, but I gather this guess because outside of Luke chapter 1, which we looked at, she is only recorded two other times in the Bible speaking. One's at the end of Luke 2. We'll get to it in a few weeks when Jesus is 12 and she's really frustrated with him because he's a 12-year-old boy. Uh, And then once in the Gospel of John, she talks to Jesus at the wedding at Cana where he would turn water into wine. But then she shows up in other places. She shows up at the early church. She shows up at the cross. She shows up out, you know, listening to Jesus or wondering what's going on with him. But none of those times do we ever have her words. Very rarely do we hear the words of Mary. And so that's my guess, is that she is a thinker. And we see here that she was thinking about this. She cares about what God is doing. She contemplates it, again, pondering that internal dialogue, internal conversation that she is having. And let me just say that I think in this story, and as we think about our own response to Jesus Christ, that both of these are commended as good. Okay, the shepherds rushing to tell everyone they knew about Jesus is very good and commendable and a great example. Mary sitting quietly and thinking deeply about Jesus is good and commendable and a great example. Proclamation and contemplation of Christ are both good. Talking about him and thinking about him are both good. It is good to share the gospel with others, and it is good to study the Bible. It is good to sing loudly and passionately, and it is good to pray quietly and privately. It's good to get excited about God and move forward. It's good to slow down and sit with the Lord and know him better. And now I'll say if you are a Christian here, you probably tend toward one of these responses over the other. 
and that's okay. You don't need to be ashamed of that. Like, it's fine to be who you are, but you might want to check your tendencies and be aware of yourself and how God has equipped you and do your best to grow in other areas. If you're not a natural evangelist, you might be more content sitting and thinking and never talking to another person about any of it. If you're not a natural evangelist, you don't have to compare yourself with those who are. Look at these shepherds. They just told 30 people in one day. It'd take me 10 years to tell that many people about, you know. Don't, Don't do that. You know, God gifts people in different ways. So don't compare yourself with others. You might be more naturally gifted at something. Well, you shouldn't use that as an excuse either. You should share your faith sometimes. Look for opportunities to do that. But also, if you're not naturally like a deep thinker, again, you don't have to compare yourself to those who are, but you should, from time to time, try to think about the things of God. Read your Bible. Pray about what's in it. That sort of thing. Grow in that. Consider what God is doing. It is good to proclaim Christ. It is good to contemplate Christ. Both of these are excellent, as we see in our passage. And I would say, especially at Christmas time, because especially when we think about the birth of Christ, as we've been doing here this season, this can push us toward both of these things. Contemplation, I think a lot of people like because it's winter and you sit inside and you can contemplate the great miracle of God becoming man and how astounding that is. So do that. Sit back. Soak it in. Think about these things. Treasure them in your own heart. Contemplate the incarnation that the Word of God became flesh, that the Son of God became human. Think about that. But it's also a great time at Christmas to share that truth with others. The peace that you have received, you should want others to know as well. So use this season to do that. Spark up a conversation with that friend, that relative. Invite someone to church. Recognize that the good news of Jesus is for all people. And even, as we saw today, the shepherds. And as we contemplate this story of Jesus's birth. And as we consider how we can proclaim it, I want us to think again here near the end of those shepherds. As I said, it's incredible in one sense that the word of the Lord came to shepherds. We've seen different people mentioned in Luke 1 and 2 that were powerful people. King Herod, uh, you know, Caesar Augustus. There were powerful, important people into the world, and God doesn't send the message of Christ directly to any of them. He sends it to shepherds out in a field that's incredible. They were nobodies, bottom of the social rung, outside the religious elites, dirty, rough, despised perhaps by some. So it seems surprising, but also, as I said, it's not surprising at all. It's not, who, not surprising that God would work through shepherds because this is what God likes to do. All throughout the Bible, we see this. I don't even mean this in like a figurative sense. Like literally, he's always working with shepherds. Like when God first formed a nation, the nation of Israel came, of course, from Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, and he had 12 sons, and their descendants became the 12 tribes. Before they had even become like a nation, they're still a big family at this point. You remember the story how Joseph had gone to Egypt, and then the other brothers had to come down later because there was a famine and all this sort of stuff. And Joseph was working for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And in Genesis 46, all the Israelites, Joseph's brothers, come to Egypt, and Joseph tells them, don't tell Pharaoh that you're shepherds, (laughs) whatever you do. Like, don't do this because Egyptians hate shepherds. 
They despise him. They don't like him. And he doesn't explain why. And so people wonder, why do Egyptians hate shepherds? And the best guess, I think, is probably because Egypt was this great world power and Joseph was in a great cosmopolitan city and shepherds were seen as hillbillies, low class, unimportant. But that's who God formed. That's who he picked to form his nation, a bunch of shepherds. A whole family of shepherds. Later, when the nation of Israel was established and they were in their land and they were a people and they wanted a king, and you remember the story, they kind of jumped the gun on that, and God gave them Saul, and it didn't really work out perfectly, but their next king, King David, would be the greatest king of Israel and a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. And where did he come from? If you remember in 1 Samuel 16, when the prophet Samuel went to meet the sons of Jesse, God had said, my choice for king is in this family, the sons of Jesse, so go meet them. And Samuel goes and he looks over all the sons and God says no to all of them. Not this, no, not none of these guys. This is not it. Even when Samuel's like, I'm sure it's this guy, he looks like a king, and God says no. And so they go through all of them. And then Samuel says to Jesse, uh, do you have any other sons? Anybody else to pick from? And Jesse says in 1 Samuel 16, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. You might remember a few weeks ago, I said, oftentimes when you read the word behold in the Bible, you can rephrase that as look, buddy. And that's the case here. There remains yet the youngest, but look, buddy, he's keeping the sheep. This is not the guy. He's the shepherd kid in the family. That's not where you'll find the king. But of course, God says, that's exactly where I am finding a king, is the shepherd. And why? Why? Because as we saw today, God himself likes to call himself a shepherd. God himself is a shepherd. We saw that this morning from the prophet Ezekiel. We saw that in Psalm 23. You can look all throughout the scriptures. You'll find it in a bunch of other places. God cares for us like a shepherd. He defends us like a shepherd. He provides for us like a shepherd. It's in his nature to be like a good shepherd. That's why this theme is so important to him. So it makes sense that the message of Christ was brought first to shepherds because God started his nation with shepherds. He started his choice of a king with a shepherd. And now the first people to believe in Jesus after his birth are shepherds. God doesn't need the important, the powerful, the wealthy to make a people. Shepherds will do just fine. If you remember in 1 Corinthians 1.26 and following, Paul wrote this to the church in Corinth. He's writing to these Christians who had come to faith in Christ. They're being built into this people of God. And he said this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast 
in the Lord. It's a great passage here. And Luke is going to spend a lot of time, as we work our way through the Gospel of Luke, we're going to see Luke show again and again and again how Christ sought out the lowly. He sought out the outcasts. He sought out the neglected. And that began at his birth when God sent the angels to the shepherds. And although Luke doesn't draw these lines explicitly, it only makes sense that it would be the shepherds who are drawn to a lamb. Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's why it's okay that God can work through the lowly, the despised, the outcast, because he says you're in Christ Jesus and he has become wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You get everything that is Christ's, and Christ is the greatest. So it doesn't matter who the people of Christ are, because they're made like him. So the shepherds are drawn to this lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is good news of great joy for all people. It's how we get peace with God. It's how God becomes pleased with us by the blood of the lamb. And it is good as we think about this, it is good to contemplate these things and to think deeply about them. It is good to proclaim these things. Contemplation and proclamation in response to the coming of Christ are good responses. And so let's turn our attention now to the Lord's table, which is both a contemplation of the work of Christ. We're told in the scriptures to, to think about this deeply. But it's also a proclamation of the, of the work of Christ, whereby we proclaim his death until he comes. So let's pray together, and I'll invite Craig up to lead us in communion. Father, we thank you for the coming of Jesus Christ and the work of salvation that began even as he was a baby in the manger. And God, we thank you that the angels proclaimed him to the shepherds as both Savior and Lord, and we pray that we would do the same in our own lives, that we would see Jesus as our Savior and as our Lord. And as we stand now on the other side of the cross of Jesus Christ, we understand even more deeply what that means, that the salvation that he offers is a salvation from our sins that the victory that he offers to us is a victory over death, a victory over the devil, all of this through his death and resurrection, whereby our sins were put upon him and his righteousness is put upon us when we come to him in faith. So would we come to him now in faith? And as we share together in the meal that he introduced to us, would you help us to contemplate these things? And would you help us to proclaim them together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.